a man and an ostrich walked into a restaurant. And they sat down, and the waitress came and said, what would you all like? And the man said, I'd like a hamburger, fries, and a Coke. And uh, she turned to the ostrich and said, what would you want? And the ostrich said, I'll have the same. And they ate their hamburger, Coke, and fries, and then the uh, waitress handed them the bill. She said, that'll be $9.20. man reached in his pocket, left pocket, pulled out exactly $9.20 and handed it to her. Didn't even look at it. Just pulled it out, everything in his pocket, handed it to her. They started coming regularly to that little restaurant. Every day, same routine. The man would make an order. The ostrich would say, I'll have the same thing. He'd reach in his pocket, left pocket, pull out everything that he had and hand it to the waitress. Exact change. Well, they came in the next Friday night after a few weeks. The waitress said, and what do you have today? You want the usual? No, I don't want the usual. This is Friday. We're celebrating a little bit. I'll have a steak. I'll have a baked potato. I'll have salad. I'll have a glass of tea. She turned to the ostrich. The ostrich said, I have the same. And when she gave him the bill, he reached in his left pocket, pulled out everything in it, handed it to her, didn't even look at it, exact change, went his way. The one waitress caught him at the door and said, wait a minute, hold on. I've got to ask you all, what's going on here? This is strange. You come in here every time you order, the ostrich says, I'll have the same. And then you uh, reach in your left pocket every time. You pull out exact money. I don't even have to count it out. You've got it. How did this come to be? The man said, well, I was up in my attic. I was cleaning the attic. My mother had left me an old lamp. It was covered with dust, so I rubbed the dust off of it, and a genie appeared. And when the genie appeared, she said, you have two wishes. You can, you can have anything you want. I'll grant them. So the man said, well, I would like the rest of my life to reach in my pocket. Every time I reach in my pocket, I would like to have the exact change, whether I'm buying a new car or a hamburger, it doesn't matter. Anything I buy, exact change. And he said, she said, granted, and that's been true for me every time I've ever purchased anything. And the woman said, well, what was the second one? He said, well, I said, I'd like to have a tall chick with long legs who would agree with me on everything I said. <laughs> Now, the point of my story was not just to get a laugh, although I think we need one this morning on this cloudy day. But the point of my story is be careful what you dream about because it just might come true, mightn't it? And in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 23, <clears throat> Jeremiah was talking about dreams and visions. And this is the second week. We had our 50th anniversary and then I said, okay, now we're not going to look back anymore. We want to have a renewed, fresh vision. We've got to think about where we're going in the future, what kind of a church we're going to be, and so on. And so today in the book of Jeremiah, would you stand with me, please, as we honor God's Word and read it? And in Jeremiah chapter 23 and verse 16, I read, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Hearken not 
under the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. Don't listen to the preachers. They're going to give you a vain vision. They speak a vision of their own heart and not out of the mouth of the Lord. In verse 21, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran or they came. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied or preached. But if they had stood in my counsel and caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. Verse 25, I've heard what these prophets said that prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed, I've had a vision, I've had a vision. But they're lying to you, he said. Then down in verse number 27, they cause my people to forget my name by their dreams, which they tell every man to his neighbor. And their fathers have forgotten my name for Baal. They've turned them to false prophets. Now, here's the text. The prophet that hath a dream will let him tell his dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat? Question, saith the Lord. What is the chaff to the wheat? Well, it's nothing, is it? Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? Thank you, and you may be seated. So in verse 16, false prophets were claiming that they had a vision from God, but they were speaking lies, said the prophet Jeremiah. They were false prophets. They were heretics, if you will. And in their preaching, they were turning the people from the God of heaven to false gods, and the prophets, of course, were profiting from what they were doing They were doing this for money, if you'll read further in the context. So Jeremiah warned the people. He said, before you believe the vision of one of these prophets, when a man gets up and says he has a vision, when a man gets up and says, God has spoken to me, when a man gets up and says, I have a dream that I want to carry out and I want you to follow me in it, he said, before you do that, I want you to... I want you to have a basis to evaluate their dream. If you evaluate their dream rightly and correctly, then you'll be protected. But if you don't, you might be led astray. And so he gave the people a way to evaluate the dreams and visions, the pronouncements of prophets, or today we would say preachers. In verse 28, he says, let the prophet that hath a dream tell his dream because his dream may have some real value and you want to listen to what he says. But also in verse 28, he says, if his vision is from God, it will be consistent with the Word of God. If you look there in verse number 28, it says, let him speak my word faithfully. In other words, whatever the man says who stands in the pulpit or the prophet or the preacher or whomever he may be, when he proclaims his vision of the future, you make sure that it's faithful to the Word of God. And then he adds that little phrase at the end of it. 
He says, what is the chaff to the wheat? Well, the chaff is worthless. The, the chaff is nothing. The chaff is separated from the wheat so that it can, so the wheat can be consumed or used in some profitable way, but the chaff is then good for nothing. It's thrown away. And so he compares our dreams, our dreams compared to the Scripture. Now, listen to me and think about this. Any pronouncement that I make compared to the Scripture is like chaff to the wheat. It isn't of much value unless, unless the vision is rooted in the Scripture, unless it's faithful to the Word of God. People ought to remember that today. I'm teaching you something very important as a congregation because preachers of all stripes and kinds today are coming and saying, I have a vision. I want to lead you somewhere in the future. I want to take this church, this ministry, this movement, I want to take it somewhere. Well, the Bible says before you listen to that man, you be sure you evaluate him and all that he says by the Word of God. Any vision that I have, if it is going to have God's blessing upon it, ladies and gentlemen, must be consistent with the Word of God. Now, that's good teaching. You listen to me on that. 1978, there was a man named Jim Jones who stood up and told a bunch of people in San Francisco, I have a vision. We're going to go and we're going to leave this country. It's so corrupt. We're going to move down to Guyana and uh, we're going to go down there and start a movement for God. And they went down there and the poor people that followed that man didn't bother to check their Bibles. And some of you who are old enough remember the tragic thing of how that, that quote, preacher poisoned 1,100 people with cyanide. And you saw on the news their bloated bodies. If the prophet gives a dream, make sure the dream is rooted in the Scripture. My guess is today there are more heresies, there's more false prophets, there's more false teaching than there ever has been before because of our communication, because of the Internet, because of publication and so on. So I warn you, when you listen to somebody, evaluate them scripturally. Now, having said that, I want you to turn in your Bible to the book of Acts chapter 2. And I know you'll have a hard time finding that as members of this church, won't you? Because I haven't preached on this, but I don't know how many times through the years. But I want to revisit it for a few moments with you this morning. And first of all, I want to say to you, number one, point number one, if you're taking notes with me, is a vision for the church must always be rooted in the Scripture. A vision for the church must be rooted, grounded, derived from the Scripture itself. Oh, if everybody would evaluate their church in that way. A vision for the church must be rooted or grounded in the Scripture. Now, here's the background of the, to Acts chapter 2 very briefly. First, Christ, of course, founded the church with his 12 apostles back in the Gospels. I believe the church started not in Acts chapter 2, but in Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus said to the 12 men assembled in front of him, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. The hell, evil, will not win out over the church in the long run is what Jesus said. 
five times after he made that statement, Jesus Christ gave the church its mission. He gave the church its purpose. We call those five statements by our Lord the Great Commission. Basically, it's a three-part thing. Go into all the world and take the gospel to every single person, every creature. After those people respond positively to the gospel, we train them, we disciple them, we teach them and lead them to become serious Christians, serious followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. By that, I mean people who obey the clear teaching of God's Word. And then thirdly, after we have discipled those people, we want to repeat that process. We want to go out into the world, and we want to continue that process of leading people to Christ, baptizing them, training them, and then replicating that process over and over and over until, as we sung a while ago, the King comes. After Jesus gave that great commission five times, the purpose, the mission for our church, then the Lord Jesus Christ said, I'm going to go back to my Father, but I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And the purpose of the Holy Spirit is not to just make you a better person, though that will happen, but the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to empower you to carry out the Great Commission. I've given you this Great Commission, but you can't do it on your own. You have to have a supernatural empowerment by the Holy Spirit in your life. And in Acts chapter 2, then, the Holy Spirit came. He came one day upon 120 followers of the Lord Jesus meeting in a little small upper room, it's called. 120 followers of Christ because that's all that was left after the crucifixion, and a lot of the people had, uh, had abdicated. They had left Jesus Christ because of the persecution there. And so now the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, and he comes upon that 120, and 3,000 people are saved and baptized in that one day. No doubt the greatest day in church history. Now, I believe, listen to me really carefully. I don't want you to ever forget this. I believe that Acts chapter 2 is the biblical model. It's the pattern. It's the template for every single church on the planet. I believe that Acts chapter 2 is a picture of what God wants Florence Baptist Temple to be, that we evaluate everything that we do here in the light of Acts chapter 2 because he's given us a pattern. If you move from this city and go out and say, I want to find a church, I need to find me a church home, for heaven's sakes, don't evaluate that church on the personality of the preacher or the beautiful campus that they have or by the programs that they offer, because that can lead you astray. You evaluate that church based upon what the Bible teaches a church ought to be. It's not the pastor's vision without the Word of God. It's the pastor's vision incorporating and being submissive to the Word of God that you need to be looking for when you're trying to find a church. And so, 
This is the biblical pattern for our church found right here in Acts chapter 2 as we think about where are we going to go in the future now after our first 50 years. Now, if this is not the model for us, then tell me what the model is. If this is not the pattern for the Florence Baptist Temple going forward in the future, then where do we get our direction in the future? I mean, are we going to go to the bookstore, the Christian bookstore, or Amazon and buy a book that somebody wrote and said, this is the way you're supposed to do church? No. I don't think so because I don't know if that prophet got his vision from God either. I want to evaluate the vision by the Word of God, and then I will know if the vision is of the Lord. Today, the church has taken a thousand different forms. Man, you can visit around this country, and you can find everything under the name of church. Church. They're calling everything church. We're doing church. We're going to church. We found the church. It's different. And then people will tell you what they think a good church is supposed to be like. And there's a thousand forms of it. And it's confusing to God's people unless they understand, look, the vision for the church, for every church, is ultimately the same. It's the vision of Acts chapter 2, beginning down in verse number 41. This is God's vision for our church. You find it here in Acts 2. You find it in the epistles all these letters written to these various churches, what were they about? Well, the apostles were writing and saying, this is the way you do church. This is what you're supposed to believe. This is the way you're supposed to behave. This is what you as Christians should be doing. And the entire New Testament is really how to do church, God's Word on how to do church. And in the Bible, you will find that the church is God's instrument. It's his right hand, if you will. It's his instrument to proclaim the truth of the gospel to a dark world. The church is God's way to make disciples, Christ followers. The church is the way, is the place where they seek the glory of God, and they are not seeking their own, quote, agenda. The church is the place where the people go out to be the salt in the community, to preserve the morality and the standards and the, and the righteousness that exists in the society, no matter how small it is. The church is the light. It's the city set on the hill. It's the lighthouse that people come and they come out of the darkness of a godless postmodern culture And they come here, and what do they see? They see light. They see hope. The king is coming. They see something that gives purpose and reason to be in life that you can't find in a materialistic, secular society anywhere. And we see that's the mission of the church. We're gospel proclaimers. Well, you see, the trend today is to downplay that. The trend today is to downplay that. The trend today is to seek to put on a good performance so that people will want to come back to entertain. The trend today is to say, well, we offer these programs to just meet your needs, but no hint of what we really believe the 
historic Christian faith, what we believe about it. There's a trend I've been reading about a lot this week. It came to my attention. And one of our members emailed me, and they were in a different city, and they told me about a situation they were going through. Where a wonderful, wonderful church is just in chaos. And now they traced it a little further, and the whole denomination that their members of are becoming chaotic. A, a, a historic bellwether denomination. And what is happening is that people are teaching the, the, the purpose of the church is social justice. And that is becoming a big trend in our culture. We're going we're gonna to really have to take our stand on that. And we will be misunderstood for taking our stand on that. Because the social justice warriors are saying, well, you know, Aren't we supposed to help the poor? Aren't we supposed to help people with housing? Aren't we supposed to be trying to improve education? Aren't we trying? Shouldn't we be trying to eliminate racism? Shouldn't we be working on all these social ills that plague our society today, all this division that's going on in the country? And I would say in a positive affirmation to every one of those. Absolutely, we're to help the poor. We're against racism in any form. We are for people having good jobs, all that stuff. But I want to tell you that is secondary. May it always be secondary at the Florence Baptist Temple. Because you see, what is primary is to proclaim the gospel, and when people receive the gospel of Christ, they're not going to be racist. When people receive the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're going to have ambition to go out and try to work and improve their lot in life. When people, when people receive Jesus Christ, there's something we call redemption lift. And we've done this, sociologists, Christian sociologists have, have, have charted this through the years. Now, here's a family, and they're ungodly, and they're wicked, and their lifestyle, they're, they're drunkards and doing drugs and immoral and everything in the world. And, and oftentimes, they're also lazy, and their lives are all messed up. And then they get saved, and they come to Jesus. And you know what they start doing? They want to do better. The Lord puts within them a desire to be a better person, a new person, to live righteously, to live a holy life. And you know what? In another generation or two, those people have risen up. It's incredible what the gospel does in people's lives. And the flawed point about the social justice movement is this, that flawed, sinful, broken sinners are not going to create a just society on this earth until the king comes back, and then he'll take care of a just society. Up until now, our job is to win them one by one, to proclaim the gospel and reach people for Jesus Christ. And in doing that, we'll do far more good than we will try to advocate for some social position or some political position. Acts chapter 2. Let's read a few verses together. Verse 41. Follow me in your Bible very closely, please. They that gladly received his word were baptized. The same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. All that believed were together and had all things in common. 
They loved each other so much, they sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Familiar words to us us here at Florence Baptist Temple. Acts chapter 2 in those verses gives us 19 pictures of life in that early church. It's like a video that you make up where you take a bunch of snapshots and you put them together and then you play the video like people do today. They'll put a series of pictures on their, on their phone and they'll turn it into a little video. Here's God's video. What our church needs to be going forward straight according to the Word of God. The other night we had a deacon's meeting, and I took this and did this same old Bible study with the deacons. I said, guys, you know what? I read all these books, and it talks about preachers having visions, and, and, and I've always I've, I felt like I had a, some vision. On the other hand, I can't get away from this. If I get very far from this, I get convicted in my soul. Who do you think you are? You're going to tell people, you're going to tell thousands of church members to get up and, 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 and you're Moses and you know God's inspiration for everything and you're just going to tell them, y'all follow me, everything will be all right. I said, if they had any sense, they'd leave. They're not going to do that. But if I can stand with a Bible in my hand and say, this is the way, walk ye in it. That's a different thing. See, my authority is not in Bill Monroe or in my office. My authority is the Word of God for telling you this is the way we need to go. And the 19 pictures, let's look at them right quick. Verse number 41, they that gladly received his word. Well, whose word is that? That's Peter is standing up and preaching. And when he preached... The Spirit of God opened the hearts of those people that six weeks before had crucified Jesus Christ. Six weeks before, they had nailed Jesus to a cross within a mile of where these people were sitting. I've been there. And this man stands up and he preaches and 3,000 people open their hearts and receive Christ as their Savior and and follow the Lord in baptism in one day. You talk about a work of God. Well, so number one, if you're taking notes with me, this is a preaching church. The vision for the Florence Baptist temples, it ought to be a preaching church. That I mean by that, that in our world today, the preaching of the Word of God has been so minimized. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that the that God uses the preaching of His Word, even though it's the foolishness of man, God uses that to change hearts and lives, that the preaching of the Word of God is the power of God that's demonstrated when it is preached in His Spirit. So it was a preaching church. That's the first part of our vision. The second picture of our vision is all the people that were saved were baptized. Baptism, the very first command, the test of our obedience. 
You say you're a Christian? It's not just saying it with your mouth. It's following the Lord in baptism. And next Sunday night when I baptize, the candidates will walk up here, and I'll ask every one of them, have you received Christ as your Savior? And they will affirm that. And then in front of a whole congregation of people, hundreds and hundreds of people, I'll put them down under the water as Christ was buried in the ground, and I'll bring them up as Christ was resurrected on the third day to follow his example. And we do that because it's right here. And then it says, this same day there were added unto them 3,000 souls. So this is a growing church, a growing church. A growing church because people are being won to Christ. People are being saved. It's not growing because the church across town is having trouble. People say, you know, they're having trouble over so-and-so. What they mean is a good chance we'll get a member out of that. No, there wasn't another church across town to have trouble in. (laughs) So they weren't growing because they were taking somebody else's members and transfers of letter. They were growing because people were getting saved and becoming Christians. How important that is. Growth occurs when people respond positively to the gospel of Christ. Verse number 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. So it was a teaching church. The Word of God being taught was of extreme importance. So many churches today have done away with the traditional Sunday school. We haven't. We still emphasize it. You know why? There's nothing more powerful than a group of people sitting together in a small enough group where you can ask a question in a group small enough that people know your name and miss you if you're not there, in a group small enough that a person who is walking with the Lord opens up the Word and they teach the Word of God verse by verse and line by line. And the discussion is not about who won the ball game last night. The discussion is not about what's happening in the community. The discussion is not about politics or our favorite hobbies. But the discussion is we're learning the Word of God, the Christian faith. They continued in the apostles' doctrine. Secondly, there's fellowship. Fellowship. As you read the New Testament, you will find that this fellowship is really relationship. And these epistles, these letters to these churches emphasize a phrase It's repeated 30-some times in different ways in the New Testament. It's called the one another's. How we are to relate to one another so we can maintain fellowship. And over and over it says things like love one another. Do you know what it says in the New Testament? Now listen to me. Everybody listen to me because some of you need to learn this. And I say it to you in great love. But I'm in a hurry. But listen. It says, speak to one another. Do you know that's in the Bible? How many of you heard me say amen? Amen. And some of you inside say, oh me. He just nailed me. You know why? I watch you walk out and you don't even make eye contact with God's creatures. Speak to one another. It says, respect one another. It says, be kind to one another. Wow, 30 of those things. 
that teach us how to relate to each other so that we can have a sweet, wonderful, positive fellowship as the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in verse 42, they had the Lord's Supper in breaking of bread, and the breaking of bread there is the Lord's Supper. And so quarterly, at least here, we come together and we have the supper. The supper is so important because it emphasizes, it reminds us of two things. One, the death of Christ, that he shed his blood and his body was broken for our sins. But secondly, it also reminds us that he's coming again, that we've emphasized today. And so they, they took the Lord's Supper. Look in verse 42, and in prayers. Man, this church, they began back after the Lord ascended with a 10-day prayer meeting. They were praying always about everything. Prayer was their priority in this church. They never ceased to pray. And then go with me down to verse 43. Fear came upon every soul. What that meant is this is a God-fearing church. There was such a high view of God, such respect for Him as Creator, as the sovereign God who has all power, that these people, they had fear of Him. And that fear doesn't mean a cringing uh, fear it, it has the idea of the highest level of respect that you can possibly imagine. And then in verse number 43 again, there were wonders and signs done by the apostles here. Now, that's referring, of course, to the fact that these people at that point, they, uh, they, these apostles had power to heal. They even had power to raise people from the dead. That ceased after the apostles died. The apostles were the only ones who had that. The preacher today doesn't have that power. The minister today, the, the full-time Christian servant, doesn't have the power to raise people from the dead. At least I haven't met anybody who did. But you know what? We see signs and wonders here all the time. We see people who have been bound with fear and worry, people who are struggling with alcohol and drugs and immorality and pornography, all kinds of life-controlling sins, filthy language, filthy thoughts, depression, all kinds of things. And you know what? We see them get into the Word of God, and we see it begin to lift them and free them from the bondage of those sins. I want to tell you, we see miracles on a regular basis in this church. They're just not the kind it was talked about here but there are great changes in people's lives. That's a mirror. That's a sign of wonder as well. And then in verse 44, all that believed were together, and they had all things in common. And so we have ministry. Man, these people loved each other so much. Notice in verse 45, they ministered to each other. They were even willing to sell their possessions and give them to the other members of the church who had need. There was an unselfishness here. They loved one another, a love that was so genuine, so authentic, so real that they would take off their mask and be themselves, be authentic, share their lives, share their possessions, share their money. They laughed together. They cried together. They prayed together. They sang together. They ate together. 
There was a bond of love that came because of that common faith that the Lord had given them. They lived in a culture that was so hostile, far more hostile than our culture. And they'd go out there in the world all week, and the world would beat them up, and they would be literally in fear of their lives. And they would come together, and they would come to the church. And it was like a little island of love and fellowship and acceptance. And out there, it was just dog-eat-dog. And so they came together, and they ministered to each other. Verse 46, they continued daily with one accord. They didn't come once a week. They didn't come three times a week. They came every day. And notice the emphasis there again that they, uh, the love that they had for each other, the, the acceptance that they had. In verse 46, they continued daily with one accord, breaking their bread from house to house. The margin of your Bible will say in their home. So the idea there is not the Lord's Supper, it's hospitality. It's that they invited people over for a cup of coffee and a piece of pie and to eat with them. And boy, that's about going, isn't it? And then in verse number 46 again, it says that they did it with gladness. There was joy. A mark of the church is joy. Real Christianity produces the fruit of the Spirit. And the, first, the second of those fruits are joy. And quickly in verse 46 again, there was singleness of heart. There was, they were single-minded in their mission and in their vision. And in verse 47, they praised God. Whether it was singing or whether it was praying, there was this sense of God, His greatness, His goodness. It brought praise to them. Verse 47, this is a little bit unusual too. They had favor with all the people. People loved them. People looked at the members of that church and said, you know what? They are so loving. They're so kind. They're so gracious. They're so giving. They're so, uh, they have such compassion. And there was a likability factor that permeated the atmosphere of their church. Let me show you a couple other things real quickly, and I conclude. Acts chapter 4 and verse 2. Turn over one, a couple chapters. Well, that couldn't last very long until the devil was on their case. And in chapter 4, after they preached the gospel, in verse 2 it says, being grieved, that's the authorities in the city, that they taught the people and preached the resurrection from the dead through Jesus. They laid hands on them and put them in the hold until the next day. Now, the hold is the jail. And so there was this hostility politically, judicially against them in the community. And persecution began. Go over to chapter 8 and verse 1 with me right quick. It says, at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered abroad. In other words, the persecution became so great that the people had to move, they had to leave the country. And this was God's way of allowing this to spread them all over the Middle East. And new churches began to be established everywhere. And the motivation for it was the persecution they were facing back in Jerusalem that they were trying to avoid. And in chapter 5 and verse 28, 
In chapter 5 and verse 28, it was a witnessing church. In fact, they witnessed so much, so much, that they were, that, that their enemies said about them, you filled our city with your doctrine. Everywhere we go, you're there witnessing. Wherever you are, one of your people is given a tract. They're sharing the gospel with people. They're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the biblical picture of a church. Nineteen qualities of the local church found in the book of Acts so that the prophet can't get up and lead you astray. You can always open your Bible to Acts 2, 41 through 47, and you know exactly what our church ought to be. There's God's picture of it. Now, it is my dream for Florence Baptist Temple that we be that kind of church. I believe it's the dream of many of you that we have a church just like that Acts 2 church. And I know that much of this I've talked to you about in the past, but listen to me. Are you still listening? Vision leaks. Vision drifts. If you, we don't constantly remind ourselves of the vision, the mission, what God wants us to do, the direction we must go, the things we must obey to have His favor and His blessing upon our church. If we don't constantly remind ourselves of that, we'll drift slowly, imperceptibly, but we'll drift away from it. And in a few years, you won't even recognize this when you compare it to Acts chapter 2. And so, I wanted to renew our vision for a New Testament church. The most beautiful institution on the planet is the church, the body of Jesus Christ. And if we are to carry out those 19 things listed there, there would be the most attractive thing in this city. People would want to come and be a part of an institution like that. Let me tell you, there's nothing, I say nothing, that you can do in your life that is as significant, that will give you the meaning and the purpose. You just can't have meaning and purpose unless you connect your life to God's plan. And this is God's plan as revealed in the Scripture. Bow your head with me, if you will, please.